Guys, this is part four, and this crazy motherfucking case is only about halfway through. I do apologize, but the utter batshitness of this case makes me have a lot to say. This is a true crime podcast, and while I don't see the need to be excessively gruesome, there are frank discussions of the cases that some people may not enjoy. This is your opportunity to bow out. You're listening to It's All Relative, and here are the doors to kick things off. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers your name. Jeffrey McDonald is under house arrest on base. He's awaiting an Article 32 hearing in advance of a formal court-martial, alleging that he murdered his wife and two little girls. He hires Bernie Siegel to represent him at the hearing. Quote from Fatal Vision, Colonel Warren V. Rock, an infantry officer with 30 years' experience, who was serving as Director of Psychological Operations at the John F. Kennedy Institute of Military Assistance at Fort Bragg, was assigned to conduct the Article 32 inquiry into the murder charges against Jeffrey MacDonald. Were he to find that the charges had merit, Colonel Rock would recommend that MacDonald be court-martialed. Should he find them to be without substance, it was within his power to recommend that they be dismissed. It had become standard practice within the military to treat an Article 32 hearing as merely a formality, at which the prosecution, often unopposed by the defense, did no more than outline the case, presenting just enough evidence to persuade an investigating officer already inclined in that direction, that the charges were worthy of referral to the court-martial. Bernie Siegel, however, did not intend to follow standard practice. His past experience with the military legal system had led him to believe that once a case had advanced to the court-martial level, at which the defendant's fate was determined by a jury composed of officers chosen by the very military authorities who had brought the prosecution, it became almost impossible to win. At that stage, the prosecution simply had too much control, and for too many of those involved, career officers, for example, concerned with their own chances for promotion, there was simply too much at stake, too much to be lost and too little to be gained from the embarrassment of a not-guilty verdict. Siegel decided to mount a full-scale defense at the Article 32 hearing. End quote. The hearing began on Monday, July 6, 1970, and the gallery was stalked by members of the press. MacDonald's story had garnered national attention, and no reporter wanted to miss a minute of the proceedings. Sagal hit the ground running and quickly poked every hole possible in the testimony of the initial witnesses. Remember, the crime scene was heavily compromised by grunts and emergency personnel alike. Military officials realized that this was not the normal Article 32 hearing and closed the courtroom to the public. Fred and Mildred Kassab were very much in support of MacDonald at this time. Freddie even held a press conference to appeal to the powers that be to reopen the proceedings to the public in order to, quote, simply ask that my son-in-law, Captain Jeffrey McDonald, be afforded the same right as any other American citizen, and that is a public hearing, end quote. The hearing remained closed. Siegel continued to make the Army look like the Keystone Cops, and once he started his defense, skies really began clearing for Captain McDonald. The first witness was M.P. Kenneth Micah, 
who, as he drove to 544 Castle Drive to respond to the emergency call, saw a woman standing in the rain who matched the description that Jeffrey McDonald would later give to investigators as one of his attackers. In fact, Micah testified that, as soon as he heard McDonald's description, he told his lieutenant of the sighting and suggested that dispatch send someone to find the woman. This did not happen. Additionally, higher-ups had told Micah not to testify about the situation, but his conscience got the better of him. The lieutenant testified that he had not heard Micah when he spoke about this woman in the rain. I bring the girl up, and they're like, what girl? I said, the girl I saw. What did you think when Ken Micah told you about this girl with floppy hat? I gotta say, I thought, excuse my language, bullshit. Bullshit. Micah, at that point, sounded like he wanted to be an investigative hero. That quote was from the first episode of a documentary series called A Wilderness of Error. This series is actually really good. We will discuss it at a later time. <sighs> Lord Shani, protect us from haughty bigots. In any event, this point of evidence, or non-evidence, meaning the woman with the floppy hat, becomes the proverbial moat in Siegel's eye. Finding out who she is is the primary goal of his defense. And Providence finds him in the form of a delivery man who had seen the reward posted for information leading to the four people claimed to have attacked the McDonald family. The delivery man happened on Siegel at his hotel, and realizing who Siegel was, proceeded to tell him about his former neighbor, Helena. Siegel has him testify. Ivory is surprised by the testimony and tracks down this woman, one Helena Stockley. Stockley was the daughter of a, re a retired lieutenant colonel who had been stationed at Fort Bragg. She had worked as a drug informant for the local police because she was an avid user of whatever drug she could get her hands on. Helena, however, did not remember where she had been or what she had done. This was not good enough for Siegel, and he essentially snarked Ivory to death on the stand. Siegel knew what the delivery man had said about Helena. She occasionally wore a floppy hat and white go-go boots. Although she was a brunette, she sometimes wore a long blonde wig. She had been known to dabble in witchcraft, and on the day of the funeral, she had put a wreath on her front door and wore all black. In another weird twist, Siegel, who normally would land on the side of the counterculture, saw these claims as proof of Helena's culpability. While he did not press the issue further during the Article 32, this will become somewhat of a white whale in the years to come. But now it is his plan to bomb the hearing with character witnesses. All of them testified to how normal Jeff and Colette seemed and how together Jeff himself was. The coup de grace was the testimony of his father-in-law, Freddy Kassab, who told Colonel Rock that, quote, if I ever had another daughter, I'd still want the same son-in-law, end quote. Lastly, MacDonald himself testifies. In most trials, this is the last thing the defense wants to happen. But in this case, Colonel Rock seems to have liked and believed MacDonald. On October 14, 1970, Colonel Rocket submits his report of the trial with the following recommendations. Quote, 1. That all charges and specifications against Captain Jeffrey MacDonald be dismissed because the matters set forth are not true. 2. That appropriate civilian authorities be requested to investigate the alibi of Helena Stockley, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Reference her activities and whereabouts during the early morning hours of 17th February, 1970. End quote. 
McDonald immediately applies for an honorable discharge, and he walks free. One thing Jeff really enjoyed about the hearing was the publicity it garnered. He loved the limelight, and Siegel figured it was good for the cause. So Siegel arranged for McDonald to be interviewed by the likes of Walter Cronkite and Bob Schieffer. On December 15, 1970, Jeffrey McDonald appeared on the show that would be the beginning of his end. He was interviewed on The Dick Cavett Show. And as a side note, like people's oblivion to laugh-in, Dick Cavett, that's Cavett, not Cavett, was a very popular show at its time. Just goog it if you're not sure. McDonald had called several people to not only tell them to watch the episode when it aired, but to also tell them to pass the word along. And just to be clear, in 1970, there was no way to record a show at home. There was no TiVo, no streaming on demand. If you didn't get your TV warmed up by the time your show began, and yes, this was once a thing too, you were sucking wind on seeing the beginning of your show. Among the viewers that night were Freddie and Mildred Kassab. The Kassabs began watching the episode with nothing but thoughts of well-being towards Jeff. During the episode, McDonald cracks jokes and talks about how horrible the experience was for him. He barely mentioned his family and definitely ignored the opportunity to get the word out about the real killers. This clip is part of a 48 Hours episode on the McDonald murders. James Rhett Kennedy gets full credit for the access, and you can find him on YouTube. On December 15, 1970, McDonald appeared on the popular late-night program, The Dick Cavett Show. I hope this isn't too painful for you. Uh... Where it became very clear McDonald was fast becoming his own worst enemy. My wife came home, and we had a uh, before-bedtime drink, really, and uh, watched the beginning of a late-night talk show. He knew how to do it, as we say in the talk show trade. He knew how to handle himself. Dick Cavett remembers well the night he was face-to-face -face with McDonald. His affect is wrong, totally wrong. My affect was, uh, gee, the find your wife and kids murdered. And even his answer to that was something like, hey, yeah, isn't that something almost sound like Bob Hope? Very like Bob Hope. There were people in the Army who wanted a court-martial, regardless of any evidence. I was angry. You were very critical, in fact, right. of the Army. I'm sure I was. Where are these investigators now who did the uh, original? Well, most of them have been transferred. It's, it's the only way of handling things. If someone really fouls up, you either give them a medal or you transfer them. Uh -huh. and, uh... Watching the show that night, Colette's family was extremely disturbed by McDonald's appearance. Colette's older brother, Robert Stevenson. All he spoke about was how his rights had been violated. I don't think he once mentioned about Let's get the murderers. My family's been killed. But I remember him grinning like a Cheshire cat. Freddie Kassab had purportedly been some sort of a spy during World War II, so investigative work came natural to him. He had wanted a copy of the Article 32 proceedings, but McDonald kept coming up with reasons to not send them. To ease his father-in-law's mind, Jeff called Freddie and told him, quote, I found other people, so he asked me, well, to make it a long story short, I implied that I killed the person. End quote. He just, what? On November 18th, 1970, McDonald phoned Kassab and boasted that together with some Green Beret buddies, he had tracked down and killed one of the hippie attackers. You get what I 
I met before? Yeah, I got what you meant. Right. I didn't say anything, but I got what you meant. But that's for real. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Yeah. I don't know. And what I did was, in retrospect, it's really crazy. And I can't explain why I did it except as this awkward and, and really stupid attempt to somehow assuage their grief a little and get them past step one in overcoming their own grief. And I said to him, Freddie, look, you don't have to worry about it anymore. We got one of them. And he sounded overjoyed. In fact, Kassab didn't believe this story. That clip is part of an A&E episode of American Justice, and James Rhett Kennedy also gets full credit for the YouTube video of this show. After the Dick Cavett episode, Fred called the Army directly, and the Army sent the transcripts along. Putting together Jeff's reluctance to let Freddy see the Article 32, his lie about killing one of the attackers, and the way he acted on national television, Freddy now had some serious doubts. Actually, he had quite a list of things that didn't make sense. He also starts recording any and all calls that deal with the deaths of his daughter and granddaughters, especially those with Jeff McDonald. Now, Army CID headquarters in Washington, D.C. had also seen McDonald criticizing the investigation, and they had seen Freddie Kassab doing worse to their reputation in press conferences and in his tenacity in the halls of the House and the Senate. In December of 1970, CID in Washington starts an investigation into just how shoddy the Fort Bragg investigation was. Quote, the conclusion reached, expressed in a letter sent to members of Congress by the Army's chief legislative liaison, was that while the investigation had not been a model of its kind, neither had it been the amalgamation of incompetence, perjury, and malicious persecution which Mr. Kassab envisioned. End quote. And here's the kicker. Quote, on January 19, 1971, Colonel Jack Pruitt, the CID's Director of Internal Affairs, was instructed to shift his attention to the murders themselves. He was given office space in the Federal Building in downtown Fayetteville. A task force of eight agents was assigned to him. Under the supervision of a warrant officer, Peter Kearns, he was told to take as much of his time as he needed. He was told all necessary resources would be available. He was told he was expected to be thorough. He was told also that it was expected this investigation would produce evidence sufficient to bring about the indictment of the killer or killers of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen McDonald. End quote. That same January, now discharged from the Army, McDonald moves to Manhattan's Upper East Side and begins working as an ER doc at One World Trade Center. If that wasn't flashy enough, quote, he also found part-time work as the assistant to a West Side physician known colloquially as Dr. Broadway, a man whose specialty it was to cater to particular needs of persons affiliated with show business, end quote. I listened to that audiobook twice, and somehow I still miss that piece of egotism personified. In February, Pruitt and Kearns went to Patchogue to inform the Kassabs that the new investigation had begun and that his son-in-law was still a suspect. By March, Freddie Kassab was helping them in their investigation against Jeffrey McDonald. After showing the investigators all of his research, he asked for two things. First, he wanted to personally check every newspaper, hospital record, and police record report that supports McDonald's claim that on Friday, November 16, 1970, he had killed one of the people responsible for the murders of his wife and children. 
and second, he wanted to be allowed into 544 Castle Drive. He wanted to test Jeff's account of the attacks to verify its credibility. I don't know the statistics, but the number of times law enforcement has allowed a member of the victim's family to actively participate in an investigation has to be close to nil. On March 27, 1971, Freddy Kassab is in Fayetteville alongside Pruitt and Kearns, searching the records and reports for a sign of McDonald's murder of one of the attackers. They find none. The next day, the three go to Castle Drive. Since the crime was still under investigation, the apartment had been kept undisturbed. While lingo has changed over the last 50 years, Kassab entered the home with the mindset of a forensic scientist. He had his detailed notes, which included McDonald's account alongside his own questions that needed answering. Kassab reenacted the crime to the best of his abilities. He even went in the neighbor's bedroom that was directly above the McDonald's living room to assess the ability of the neighbors to hear what was happening in the McDonald residence. Pruitt, Kearns, and Kassab stayed at Castle Drive for most of the day, taking a break for dinner and then returning to test how things may have occurred in the dark. The result was that no matter what allowance was made for McDonald's timeline being off or his misremembering one thing or another, the attacks could not have played out the way that McDonald claimed they did. Quote, Kassab remained in the apartment until midnight. By the time he emerged, he was not only thinking the unthinkable, he was convinced. With the conviction, there came a strange, icy calm. At last, Kassab knew who his enemy was. The anguish, rage, and frustration that had consumed him for more than a year began to fuse into a new and quite different emotion. A commitment so powerful, so concentrated, that its essence would sustain him for the next decade and more, as he carried forward a single-minded, obsessive, and often solitary crusade to see Jeffrey MacDonald convicted of murder and imprisoned. End quote. In May, MacDonald takes a holiday in Barbados. Again, where is he getting the funds for these things? On returning to New York, he realizes that his 15 minutes of fame seemed to be waning. He had counted on a residency at Yale, but this did not transpire. So he took an ER job on offer from a former Green Beret dock in Long Beach, California. McDonald sends his in-laws a change of address card with only the quickly written promise that he would write more soon. But he doesn't write, nor does he call. And when in November he returns to New York to visit friends and family, the Kassabs are not included. Dorothy McDonald tells the Kassabs that Jeff could no longer visit the graves. It was just too painful. She soon moves to California to live close to her son. Quote, Having pursued leads in 32 states, Vietnam, Okinawa, Germany, the Canal Zone, and Puerto Rico, and having conducted dozens of new tests at the crime scene and having obtained and analyzed 34 additional laboratory reports, and having interviewed 699 people and having obtained sworn statements from 151, and having administered polygraph tests to everyone whose testimony was considered directly relevant, except Jeffrey MacDonald, who refused to undergo such an examination, Colonel Pruitt's reinvestigation completed its inquiry into the MacDonald murders on December 6th, 1971, end quote. And the conclusion made was that all the evidence pointed to Jeffrey McDonald as the perpetrator. Unfortunately, the district attorney declined to prosecute. Freddy Kassab was not going to accept that decision. He began to contact every person in every office with any kind of clout who could get Jeffrey McDonald charged and tried. He calls reporters and tries to get the public behind his cause. In March of 1973, 
After a pointed article appeared in the New York Daily News, Jeffrey McDonald tried to contact Allard Lowenstein. Lowenstein, an attorney and a congressman, had been contacted shortly after the murders two years previous. At first, he had been a supporter of Jeffrey McDonald, but he soon realized that McDonald was probably guilty and that he should remove himself from any connection to McDonald if his career were to survive. Lowenstein did not speak with McDonald when he called, and Lowenstein wanted to test the waters before he called Jeff back. He called Kassab, and after a relatively lengthy convo, decided to remain detached from the life of Jeffrey McDonald. He did not call him back. Two days later, almost a year since they had spoken, McDonald calls Freddie Kassab, and he is livid. This call shows Jeff McDonald in rare form. Quote, Kassab's recording device was working imperfectly, but it did pick up the sound of a raised voice, and McDonald's voice was raised frequently, particularly when Kassab mentioned his awareness of the fact that McDonald had enjoyed sexual relations in his BOQ room during the Article 32 hearing. You believe that, Fred? McDonald shouted. Because the CID, CID told you it was true? Absolutely. Is that what you're telling me? There was a quality of raw fury in McDonald's voice that Kassab had never heard before. I'm telling you, Jeff, I've got a copy here of an affidavit from the girl. Oh, Fred, I'm really disgusted. You'll believe anything. You'll grasp at any straw. You could have affidavits from 14 people. Do you know how many telephone calls I got while I was at Fort Bragg, Fred? I got them from Minnesota and Chicago and Los Angeles and everywhere else on Earth. Every person in the world called me. If you think that affidavit means anything, you're crazy. I have no idea what you're talking about, Freddie, or what you're talking about, but if you're telling me I slept with a girl in my room every night, that's just the most absurd, insane comment. I hope you put that out, Fred, McDonald screamed. I hope you put that out sometime. I just hope you bring that out. Because if you have the audacity to believe something like that, then you deserve everything you get. Jeff, I talked to the girl. I don't care, Freddie. I talked to a lot of people. I can get an affidavit from anyone saying almost anything. If you put a little pressure and money in the right place, you talk to the girl, McDonald continued, his voice dripping with scorn. What the hell does that mean? I got marriage proposals while I was being held in my room, the supposed murderer of my family. Now what kind of people do you think there are in the world? You know, for a year, you tell me that you have undying backing for me and whatnot. And all of a sudden I turn around and while I'm still trying to recover, do you think for one minute, Kassab interrupted, that you hurt more than Mildred does? Uh, yeah, I think I do, Fred. You know, I don't have to take this anymore. If you think I'm going to bare my soul to people like you after what I have gone through, you've got another thing coming. But you ought to make sure of your facts first, because your facts are wrong. You're hurting innocent people. You're making yourself into a murder, Freddy. You just won't let go. Time will tell, Jeff, Kassab said. Time will tell, MacDonald shouted, but you ought to have a little more compassion for the one who suffered the most. End quote. The one who suffered the most? That man has no shame. Let me just... Beep, 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 beep. Take that shit to the trash dump and leave it there. The man also doesn't know when to quit. After the phone fight, McDonald writes to Mildred. He outlines how much he loved his family, how he wasn't involved in the deaths, and asked her to convey these things to Freddy. It was not a short letter. Freddy is not snowed. He continues to pepper the desks of Washington with his for justice. Unfortunately, Washington and eventually the court in North Carolina kept passing the buck. 
until the Assistant Attorney General, Henry Patterson, decided that the case had legs and dropped it on the desk of Victor Warheide in the summer of 1974. Quote, Approximately two weeks after Warheide had begun his review of the case, he received a phone call from a 27-year-old military attorney named Brian Murtaugh, who was attached to the CID command in Washington and who had been involved in the processing of paperwork related to the McDonald case since the completion of the CID reinvestigation in December of 1971. As he had processed, Murtaugh had read, and as he had read, he had formed an opinion that Jeffrey McDonald was indeed guilty of the crimes with which the Army had charged him. Once he had come to that conclusion, Murtaugh found it difficult to accept that the Justice Department attorneys, who had made it clear to him that they were equally convinced of McDonald's guilt, could decide, for what they claimed were pragmatic reasons, that prosecution should not even be attempted. It seemed to me, Murdaugh would say years later, that the gravity of the crime was such that it was the duty of anybody who believed McDonald guilty, and there was no one I talked to who didn't, to take all available steps to attempt to bring him to trial, no matter how unlikely conviction seemed. As far as I was concerned, that was a social contract. That was the duty of the people who held those positions. The holders of those positions, however, did not appear to agree. The core problem, as Murtaugh perceived it, was that no one with the power to make a decision had ever directly exposed himself to the minutiae of the case. The details of the physical evidence which Murtaugh believed so clearly marked Jeffrey McDonald as the killer, always an assistant would be instructed to review the massive file, and he in turn would delegate to another assistant the task of doing the actual reading, and that would lead to the compilation of a condensed report based upon which the first assistant would write a memorandum which would then be presented to the official who had first been asked to consider the question. By the time a redrafted memorandum designed to satisfy a superior who lacked the time to deal with raw material reached a desk at the level at which decisions were made, it was as devoid of emotional content as a stock analyst's buy and sell or hold recommendation. Also, the recommendation was always the same do not prosecute. From a cost-effectiveness standpoint, the McDonald case was considered a loser. Whether he was guilty or not was irrelevant. Without a history of similar actions, without a confession, without any witnesses, and with no apparent motive, even if the original investigation had not been so badly mishandled, the attempt to convict him was so unlikely to succeed as to render unjustifiable the resources that would have to be expended. It was as if Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen McDonald were and always had been mere abstractions. End quote. One, I feel this is a good time to plug the 5-4 podcast, which deals with how awful the Supreme Court is. And two, this, ladies and gentlemen, is the problem with our legal system. Everything is shit, people. But War Heidi had Murtaugh assigned to be his aide at the Justice Department. And on July 18, 1974, Victor Warheide told Freddie Kassab that he was going to order a grand jury hearing in the Eastern District of North Carolina. McDonald was finally going to face justice. Next week, and yes I know, this case is still going, we will talk about the grand jury proceedings and touch on the trial. The craziness is not over, people. You will thank me. If you want to support the podcast, like and subscribe. Reviewers, no trolls, please. Constructive comments, welcome. You can reach me at Despecta, or a version of that, on most of the things. And here's some John Lennon to send you on your way. This is karma's gonna get you. Gonna knock you right on the head. You better get yourself together. Pretty soon you're gonna be dead. 
you.